Robinson, who is uh, uh, an emeritus professor of defense analysis at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, and is also affiliated with the Center for Middle Eastern Studies at the University of California at Berkeley. He just retired uh, from the Naval Postgraduate School and uh, published the book, Global Jihad, A Brief History uh, in 2020. Uh, I must say that he actually uh, spent two months uh, technically writing uh, parts of the book here at the Middle East Institute back in uh, 2020, no, back in 2019, sorry. Uh, so it's a great pleasure to have you back here uh, with us. Uh, uh, without further ado, I'll, I'll leave the floor uh, to you. I understand you have uh, uh, slides that you'd like to share uh, with the audience. So we'll uh, first listen to uh, Professor Robinson, and then uh, we'll uh, have a conversation uh, on the book. Floor is yours. Thank you very much. Um, be back uh, at uh, the Middle East Institute here. Um, and uh, it's, it's a great honor to be able to present uh, some of the main uh, themes in the book. Um, it, uh, the book has received some nice uh, recognition from foreign affairs and foreign policy as a book of the year. Um, and uh, what I'd like to do over the next 30 or 40 minutes um, is to, again, lay out some of the main arguments, the main themes uh, in the book, and we'll have, I think, some time for discussion uh, as well. So uh, without further ado, um, in the book, I essentially make two uh, arguments. Um, one has to do with the understanding of this, this phenomenon of global jihad, which is not an old phenomenon, right? It, it really dates from the 1980s, uh, for reasons we'll get into. Uh, and it's an argument about how to best sort of understand and categorize global jihad. And I make the argument that it is best understood as four quite distinct movements. They're all jihad-based, and by jihad here, I mean the jihadicite, the jihad of the sword, which is the way the ideologues that I'm looking at use the term. Um, and they're under the banner uh, of Islam in a, in a globally focused uh, effort. Uh, so you have four fairly distinctive movements, all global jihadist, uh, but all with its own kind of ideological formulations and understandings of the world and um, uh, prescriptions for how to, how to move forward. So we'll go over each of those four iterations or waves, if you will, uh, of global jihad. Uh, and again, each of these understands the main problem um, that, the, that the Muslim world is facing in a globally systemic way. This is not a local jihad group, so I'm making the distinction uh, with local uh, jihad groups, which are much more common and been around longer. And then at the en end of the book, as I will do towards the end of my remarks today, is ask the so what question. How do we understand this phenomenon in the broader comparative sense? Um, is this sui generis? Is it something that's just kind of interesting and unique um, to parts of the Muslim world, or is this something um, a broader? And I make a broader argument that, that um, uh, one needs to understand in order sort of to, to put this in the right, um, un, you know, the right understanding is what I call, borrowing uh, Ken Jowett's phrase, uh, movements of rage, um, that global jihad is one form of a movement of rage, and there are other um, movements of rage in the world over the last century or so, and it makes for kind of interesting comparisons. So we'll get to that uh, in uh, in a few minutes. 
So in the book, in the in the introduction, of course, I, I make the case that this phenomenon of global jihad, again, that originated uh, primarily in the 1980s, um, didn't come out of left field, to use an American expression. It uh, was not something that was just happened all uh, overnight all of a sudden, but had intellectual uh, and political precursors. Um, and basically looking at several steps along the way, the first is the creation in the 20th century um, what we used to call Islamic fundamentalism, but um, Islamism is the, the now the preferred term, political Islam, another term that uh, gets used a lot. This is, Islamism is very much a 20th century phenomenon, right? It's very much linked to sort of issues of mass society, um, anti-imperialism, and, and other such things. And in terms of dating, when, when do we see the rise of Islamism? You basically cannot make a, a, a good argument that it predates 1928. What happened in 1928? The fellow on the top of the screen uh, there, Hassan al-Banna, an Egyptian school teacher, uh, founds the Ikhwan al-Muslimin, the, the Muslim Brotherhood uh, organization. It, more of a social club in its founding, um, uh, but, but develops uh, over time. In part, this is sort of the second stone along the way, uh, stepping stone, was the failure of, or at least the perceived failure of Islamism uh, to make a change, right? To, to take power, to uh, implement the, the construction of some version of an Islamic state, um, gave rise to, in the 60s and 70s, a series of intellectuals um, um, who basically made the argument for the necessity of violence, uh, that in order to advance a cause of building a, an Islamic state of one sort or another, and there's there's not a lot of agreement about exactly what that should look like. Um, people, uh, and here uh, you have a picture in the lower left of Saif Qutb in the Sunni world, Ayatollah Khomeini on the right side there in the Shia world and many others, uh, these were not unique people, made the case in the 60s and 70s for the necessity of violent political action in order to grab the levers of power of the state in order to implement um, their vision of uh, a, uh, an Islamic state of, of some sort. And again, the, the difference in the book, I describe the difference between Islamists and jihadists or jihadis is over the issue of violence. That is the cornerstone issue. Islamists, it's not that Islamists have always eschewed violence, but it's a, it's a tactical necessity from time to time. But in general, it's a political project. For jihadis, um, that was a non-starter, that the political process and the absence of, of violent action will essentially need, lead nowhere. Uh, so you need to uh, engage in, uh, in violence um, against the state uh, in order to move the ball forward. And then the third stepping stone is the thing that I spend the time looking at in this book is this offshoot of the, the jihadi kind of arguments that is global in orientation, right? The vast majority of jihadi groups and argumentation up to that point has had been localized uh, over a, a particular regime, a small stretch of land, something like that. Um, but these now in the 1980s were ideologues, and here again in the bottom two, bottom right, two, two pictures of Dalla Azam and Abu Musab al-Suri, we'll talk about each of them in a few minutes, made arguments about the systemic global nature of the cause, that this was not something that can be limited to, again, local issues, local regimes, et cetera, but had a, um, a global uh, systemic 
uh, problem that they were uh, addressing. And I won't go into it now, but it's an interesting question about why did this global jihad phenomenon only occur in the Sunni world? There's, there's not a Shia equivalent um, uh, to the things that I'm describing um, in this book. Um, and again, that's the interesting thing to talk about uh, in, uh, um, in the Q&A part. All right, so again, I, I make a case for four specific iterations or waves, uh, if you will, uh, of global jihad. The first one begins in the 1980s. Um, and the specific crisis that launched this first iteration of global jihad was the Soviet invasion and occupation of uh, Afghanistan, which uh, actually began a few days before the 1980s began in December of 1979. Um, the, the key ideologue here, and uh, my, uh, my, my uh, uh, friend and, and, uh, and colleague, uh, colleague uh, Thomas Heghammer, has written a wonderful uh, new biography of Abdullah Azam, who you see uh, there on the, on the upper right. And, and down below, the, you see the picture of the Imam of Jihad, the, the preacher of Jihad. Um, Abdullah Azam was a, a Palestinian um, that grew up in Jor uh, under Jordanian rule, uh, went briefly to Saudi Arabia, and then uh, in uh, the early 80s uh, made his way to Pakistan, Islamabad and uh, Peshawar. Uh, Pakistan. His vision in, um, uh, and there were a number of innovations. He, to this day, he is considered uh, one of the sort of the, the, the godfather, if you will, of global jihad. But his vision was very specific um, and that had to do with occupied Muslim lands. And there was this phrase up there, you see it um, 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 at the top of the title, Qaeda uh, Sulba, uh, which I have not translated, but I talk about the Jihadi International. This phrase of Qaeda Sulba was very commonly used by jihadis in Afghanistan and elsewhere uh, in the 1980s. It literally translates into the solid base or the solid foundation, a cornerstone maybe. Um, but the way Azam, and the way that Azam used this phrase early in the 1980s was the same way. He was not different from other jihadis. And that was the idea that once we defeat the Soviets, uh, we set up our own state in Afghanistan. And from there, Afghanistan is the solid base. It's the solid foundation or the cornerstone for uh, activities elsewhere uh, in the Muslim world. In the last two years of his life, Abdullah Azam reimagined this concept of uh, Qaeda Sulba um, into, uh, again, what I label as a, a vision of, of the Jihadi International. Why that phrase? You'll remember the Communist International, the common turn uh, that was created uh, back in the 1910s, 1920s whose job it was to uh, work with local populations, primarily uh, in Europe, um, work with these local populations in an attempt to overthrow local bourgeois domination. Uh, so this was the Communist International. They didn't do a lot beyond speechifying, but that was at least the idea, that you had a Communist International that would work with local populations to liberate their country uh, from, uh, from, an, from an evil type of rule, in that case, um, from the bourgeoisie. Azam took that notion, um, but, but made it into a jihadi concept and said, 
uh, and it was very clear in this in the in the upper right hand picture. That's a picture from the April 1988 um, magazine, as you say, Majella uh, the uh, Jihad, the Jihad magazine, um, where he says what we really mean by al-Qaeda sulba is not um, is not the solid base of territory, but instead a pious warrior class that we need to create a pious warrior class of Muslims that will do elsewhere in the world what we did in Afghanistan. And that is um, these, this pious warrior class will come from different Muslim countries around the world uh, and they will train and become you know, experts, not just in Islam and Islamic theology, but in the, um, you know, in the, in the black arts of guerrilla warfare, et cetera. And they would travel the world and work with local populations to liberate their country from non-Muslim rule, from apostate rule, essentially. Um, uh, so he, you know, when, when you look in the 1980s, uh, there are a dozen or so places around the world that this concept would apply to, right? Uh, first in Afghanistan, you know, finishing up the business of throwing off Soviet rule. Um, he was very clear that Palestine was next on his list, again, him being ethnically a Palestinian. Um, and then after that, you know, the imagination runs wild. He talked about the five republics in Central Asia a, a, a bit, who were, you know, the occupation by Moscow of these uh, traditionally Muslim lands. He talked about Kashmir in northern India as occupied by the Hindu state. Mindanao in the southern Philippines, again, occupied by Catholic Manila, uh, et cetera. So a dozen or so of these places around the world that were historically Muslim lands uh, that were then run, or ihtilal is the word he used, occupied by some non-Muslim um, uh, apostate power. Um, so this was his main contribution, this notion of jihadi international, to take that Afghan model and apply it uh, globally uh, to liberate lands uh, around the around the Muslim world, he he got into other things again for the sake of time. I won't uh, get into it here, but uh, tawhid amali uh, that you see here, which is means the action um, tawhid uh, that essentially is like the Trotsky notion of a jihad, armed jihad, jihad site as a permanent revolution, um, not something that was episodic, which is the traditional. Um, interpretation of jihad, of armed jihad, right? It's episodic, it has a beginning, has an end. Um, but you had Saad Qutb, even in the 1960s, talking about permanent jihad, but not really giving us a good philosophical reason why we should think of jihad, armed jihad, as a permanent state of nature, as opposed to an episodic event. In the same way in English, we talk about revolutions, right? In France and elsewhere, that hey, they have a beginning, they have an end, they're not always there. Um, he was, um, Azam was the most prolific uh, popularizer of the Afghan Jihad in the 1980s. He traveled the world, um, came to the United States on a couple of occasions to raise money and awareness of the Afghan Jihad, traveled throughout the Arab world and Europe. Uh, I'm not sure he ever made it to Singapore, uh, but he did do a lot of traveling and again, popularizing of the, of the Afghan Jihad. So this 
this wave, I, I date to 1990. So what happens in 1989 and 1990, two things that essentially end this way of thinking about this novel, unique, first time that it was thought about as a global jihad. Um, two things happened. One, in 1989, Abdullah Azam was assassinated in Peshawar, Pakistan. Um, by folks who have um, never claimed credit. Um, and in 1990, uh, in August, August 2nd of 1990, Iraq invaded Kuwait. His colleague, Azam's colleague in Afghanistan, Osama bin Laden, um, reached out and he was the bin Laden family and uh, Osama bin Laden was very close to a lot of uh, high officials in Saudi Arabia. Uh, reached out and said, look, don't bring in the Americans and these other you know, apostate uh, countries uh, to liberate Kuwait, let's do the Jihadi International instead. Let's do the Azam model or the Afghan model in Kuwait. So I, Osama bin Laden, will raise 100,000 Mujahideen um, from the uh, primarily the Arab world for, for uh, bin Laden. And we will liberate Kuwait that way. And the Saudis, of course, said no uh, to that offer. Uh, Azam, the biggest proponent, had uh, been killed a few months earlier in November of 89. Um, and so this, this first wave or first version, first iteration of global jihad uh, essentially went away uh, at that point. You'll always find a few true believers out there, but uh, uh, effectively uh, went away. One last point about Azam, uh, which makes him different. Um, not very many high-ranking clerics are uh, proponents of this kind of armed jihad, global jihad. Um, or even a local versions of jihad. Um, middle to lower ranking clerics, you can usually find a few that will support your cause, but not high ranking ones. Azam actually had a doctorate in, in Islamic jurisprudence uh, from El Azhar in Cairo, uh, which made him, which is of course uh, the noose of uh, the National University of Singapore equivalent uh, in the Muslim world as the, um, as a, as a sort of the best seminary out there to get your doctorate uh, from. So he actually had these kind of credentials that very few of the ideologues that I'm talking about um, uh, hold. All right. The second wave, and the one that the Americans certainly know the best, is the what I call the America First or the Far Enemy uh, wave or iteration. And this is best understood or known through Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. Um, very different origins, very different sort of prescription of, of what the problem is and how do we go forward in the world. The crisis here was not the occupation of, of historically Muslim lands by non-Muslim powers. The crisis was the durability of these, what he would view as apostate regimes in Saudi Arabia and Egypt and elsewhere, that they kept, they, they kept staying in power. And at the same time, again, he's writing uh, in the 1990s, he's not a global jihadi when he's working in Afghanistan in the 1980s, but he becomes one in the mid 1990s. Um, and part of the reason why is he sees this expanding military footprint of the US in the Middle East, in the, in the, in the Persian Gulf area in particular, and basically connects the dots saying, look at those two things are connected, the durability of these local apostate regimes and the growing and the post-Cold War era, uh, and when, when the U.S. had something of a hegemonic position in the region, the growing uh, military footprint um, uh, in the region. So his notion of global jihad was to drive the Americans out 
of the all of the Islamic world eventually, beginning in the Gulf, expanding out uh, uh, from there. And in order to make this ideological argument, he goes back to the fellow that you see uh, on the screen right there. Do I get a little uh, arrow here? Nope, never mind. Um, uh, Muhammad Abdesalam Faraj, or Farag, uh, if you want, an Egyptian um, jihadi who was the head of the group that assassinated uh, Anwar Sadat in 1981. And uh, Faraj had written this, so you see the cover of the book in the lower right, Farida Ghaiba, uh, the neglected duty or the hidden obligation uh, by which he meant armed jihad um, to overthrow. Um, this is sort of the Takfiri argument, to overthrow uh, local anti-Islamic regimes beginning in Cairo, right, beginning in, in Egypt, which is the ideological justification for the assassination of Sadat. And Faraj comes up with this dichotomy of near enemy, far enemy, right? This is, this is not an old Islamic tradition or anything like that. This is a dichotomy that Faraj came up with in 1979 uh, to say that we want to focus on the near enemy, the near enemy being the regime in Cairo, because if we focus on the far enemy, which for Faraj was Israel, uh, A, we probably won't succeed, and if we do, the local regimes will take all the credit for it. So we have limited manpower, limited resources. We need to focus on the near enemy instead of the far enemy. Bin Laden comes along and said, Faraj had a good idea, but he got it wrong. He got it exactly 180 degrees wrong. Uh, and that is, in order to have success against near enemy regimes, uh, your, your local enemy, you have to drive away the far enemy, because the far enemy is what keeps these near enemy regimes alive, keeps them up. You know, we can assassinate Sadat or, you know, whatever, we can, we can, we can punch people in the face, and the regimes may uh, wobble a bit, but they always right themselves. And why do they right themselves? They do it because of the Americans, the American support is the sort of the weight at the bottom of this doll that you know brings it back up every time. So we have to focus our energy on driving the far enemy out of the region in order for the near enemy, these local regimes, uh, to become uh, vulnerable. So that was, again, a very different kind of view of the world and the problem, the main problem um, that Azam had, right? Very, very different from each other. Um, and this is why you see, beginning in 1998, with the attacks on the um, U.S. embassies in, in Kenya and Tanzania, uh, the, uh, the attack on the USS Cole in Aden Harbor, um, and then ultimately, of course, the 9-11 attacks in 2001 in the United States, these were all done under this rubric of the, of the America first, going after America first. And once you drive them out of the region, uh, then these local regimes will become much more vulnerable. Again, other, other interesting things um, uh, out of bin Laden, but I think that, that, that America first, far enemy first um, um, uh, argument was his, his really unique contribution to the jihadi strategic studies, if you will. All right, the third wave is the, uh, the ISIS um, well, I should say the dating here, 1996, what happens in 1996? Well, some people, my colleague uh, Fawaz Georges talks about 1995 being the key year, but sometime in the mid 90s, 96 is when um, uh, the first major document that begins to outline a far enemy 
argument um, by Osama bin Laden gets made in a, actually an oral speech in the Hindu Kush that gets um, uh, uh, put pen to paper and there's a whole history behind that. But anyway, 1996, he makes this declaration, not a fatwa, but a declaration um, um, about both the Americans and the Saudis. He's still kind of one foot in the near enemy regime. Um, but it's in the mid 90s where this kind of argument starts to take place. So there's a there's a five or six year gap of where there's not much going on in terms of global jihad movement, uh, but it starts up again in the mid 90s again. Um, and then the 1998 fatwa, uh, which was in fact uh, titled a fatwa uh, to kill the uh, all Americans. The, the, the first, um, or the 1998 document gets announced, uh, for those that read Arabic, in Qudd al-Arabi, um, a headline there, the, sort of the, the top headline talks about uh, bin Laden, Ayman al-Zawahiri, um, and uh, Rafa'a Taha, who was a, another jihadi from uh, Egypt, issue this fatwa to kill Americans in, in any location around the world, no distinction between military and civilian. So this was a call for the mass slaughter of, you know, 300 plus million uh, Americans by bin Laden. So when I when I talk about calls for nihilistic violence later in a few minutes, this would be a good example of a call for nihilistic um, uh, over the top violence. All right. So the third wave or third iteration of global jihad is you know, best known through ISIS, the caliphate uh, wave. 2003 um, with the U.S. invasion of Iraq. 2017, I date it not because ISIS has disappeared, but because it no longer controls territory. It doesn't make a claim anymore to having a territorial state um, that it physically controls. That ended uh, with the, um, their defeat in Mosul and then in Raqqa, in 20, uh, so Mosul, uh, Iraq, and Raqqa, Syria in 2017, which essentially ended the, the Dawla Islamiyah, the Islamic State, the territorial state. This, this wave is by far the largest of the four waves that we're talking about. Uh, so there are many key uh, ideologues, many, many documents, um, uh, too many to go over here. But let me just mention a few of the kind of ideological innovations that are different, that are distinctive for ISIS that you did not see in the first two. So the, the immediate crisis or crises uh, were the destruction of the Iraqi state in 2003, and then a few years later in 2011, the destruction, or not the destruction, but the eruption of the Syrian civil war and that ISIS was able to take uh, full advantage uh, of. Their underlying sort of deeper crisis was not occupied historically Muslim lands, was not the durability of apostate regimes because of that American connection, but was apostasy itself. How do you create a state in which apostasy, sinful behavior, um, is, is not possible, or at least is very, very difficult uh, uh, to do. How do you create this, this puritanical uh, Islamic state in the heart of the Middle East, right, um, in, in Iraq and, and Syria, over the border? Um, it's, it's similar to, the, um, to the, the old Christian distinction between the city of man, city of God, um, uh, Augustine of Hippo in the fourth century, um, that was basically arguing, you know, what's the purpose of the city of man, that is temporal earthly power, uh, is to make the city of God possible, to, to make living a pious, fully pious lifestyle possible. So 
the armed forces of the state and the institutions of the state allow for a pious life uh, to happen, at least in their, in, in their imagination. Um, so this is, um, again, it's very different from the first two uh, iterations of global jihad and just a few of their innovations. One is, I mean, this is very much the state building wave of global jihad. It's the only one of the waves that is really focused on building a state, right, in the heart of the Middle East. But it wasn't just another state, right? We have about 200, nearly 200 states around the world that have a seat or at least recognized by the UN and you know, the different accoutrements of, of, of being a recognized modern state. This was a pre-Westphalian state, right? Treaty of Westphalia, 1648, um, mostly amongst uh, small Germanic states in Central Europe, basically say, look, we need to have a playbook, rules of the game that we're not, we're not basically saying only my kingdom is recognized by God and everything else is a blaspheme uh, to God. Uh, instead, we recognize the basic legitimacy of, of other states. It doesn't mean we won't go to war with each other, but, but the basic legitimacy of other states we will recognize. Um, and, and this is, we still, I mean, that was 1648. We still live in a Westphalian world uh, today where we recognize the basic legitimate. We don't have to agree with them. We go to war with them. But we recognize the basic legitimacy of states around the world. ISIS did not, right? You, know, you don't remember ISIS applying for a seat at the United Nations. Right, you don't remember ISIS uh, exchanging ambassadors and diplomatic recognition with with other countries. Why? Because they didn't. They had no interest. That's that's what a Westphalian state does. A pre-Westphalian state views its state as the only legitimate state in the world. Everything else is a blind in the in the eyes of God. Um, and so this was this makes it a very interesting, right? Twenty first century um, pre-Westphalian type of state, and 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 that all in you know, what it means. Apocalyptic ideology, I've had colleagues that go into in depth looking at that, um, you know, end of the world, end times kind of uh, uh, ideology. Um, the city of a small little farming town, actually, of Dabek in northern Syria. You see the flag, the ISIS flag there that's at Dabek that uh, figures into traditional uh, Kiliastic end times um, uh, discussions, and at least in Sunni Islam. That became a very important town for ISIS to hold it as it did for a while. Um, the performative violence, again, there's a lot to be said for that. The extreme sectarianism, the storytelling over theology. Let me just make a note of that. ISIS did very little to try and persuade high-ranking ulama, high-ranking clerics around the Muslim world in the legitimacy of its cause. It did a little bit, but not, not very much. It was its public pronouncements and its sort of statements of ideology had much more to do with recruiting that narrow slice, mostly of young Muslim men looking for meaning and adventure in their lives to come fight for them. That was, that was the dominant uh, theme in their, again, in their public relations discourse, not trying to convince the Sheikh al-Azhar and uh, the, the, you know, the Mufti of Saudi Arabia and others uh, in the, the, the uh, theological legitimacy of their cause. They did almost none of that, uh, frankly, which makes it, again, very, uh, very interesting. The last point um, that I go into in some detail in the, in the book, I think is very interesting. It's what I call jihadi cool. It's essentially what anarchists in the 19th and early part of the 20th century would refer to as propaganda of the deed. 
or what Nike, the court Nike Corporation uses in their marketing a logo of just do it, right? Going out and doing something. Let your actions speak louder than your words. Um, you know, just go full out cool and just do the most amazingly, in many ways, grotesque things. Um, but that becomes part of the allure, right? And it's not just the kind of violence that you can participate in, but the, um, the, the, the sex slave industry that went along with ISIS as well, that went anywhere from getting you a, a Muslim uh, a wife to literally a sex slave industry that went on. So if you're a young man, you know, this was cool. You could do video game kind of slaughter and be rewarded for it. Um, you would, you know, you get as much sex as you want um, as well. And, you know, it was, and you were celebrated for all of this. So the, the kind of the jihadi cool propaganda of the deed uh, element, which I, I take some time exploring uh, in the book. All right, each of these three waves are essentially over. You'll find true believers uh, in all of them, but, but, but not, not a lot, uh, frankly, anymore. The fourth wave is the one I call the Jihad Fardi, or the personal jihad uh, wave. And, and Jihad Fardi just means personal jihad, which is different, incidentally, again, for those that you know, studied a little bit of Islamic theology, the Jihad Nefs means personal jihad as well. And that is, is, is a sort of a religious obligation to, for self-improvement, self-betterment. Uh, to become a better, better person, uh, the first the jihad to overcome temptation and that sort of thing. Jihad Fadidi, again, personal or individual uh, jihad, uh, but what is meant by this is individual violence done not by a group, but by an individual or small cell that are networked through modern information technology, the internet, social media. Um, and it's through those actions that, um, that global jihad survives. So why is this an issue? The crisis in this fourth wave that, again, begins about the same time as the third wave, um, but in Afghanistan, not Iraq, is the destruction of the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, at least at the time, um, in 2001, the end of 2001. And then I think one could also put on top of that the destruction of the Islamic Caliphate, so-called Caliphate, uh, in Syria in, uh, in 2017, that the deeper problem was the very survival of this global jihad movement that had not been, in, not been around too long, right? Only in the 1980s, as we discussed. And now, because of the invasion of Afghanistan following the 9-11 terror attacks, um, According to Abu Masab Suri, who is the main ideologue of this fourth wave, um, the Americans and their allies had been actually pretty darn effective in killing or capturing or putting on the run all of what was a fairly small community of global jihadis that were based in Afghanistan um, at the time. Um, so Asuri, who was a Syrian from Aleppo, who had written extensively on the Syrian civil war, 900-page book on the Syrian civil war that he had participated in, and he uh, uh, had to uh, go into hiding and into exile in Spain and then in London uh, afterwards. Uh, he passed himself with, and he's oftentimes referred to as an al-Qaeda ideologue. I, I don't think that's actually accurate. I think he's very much a free agent. He's a sort of an independent thinker. 
um, for my money, the most interesting of the um, of these jihadi ideologues, um, mostly because he was a, he was self-critical uh, of the jihadi movement when it made mistakes, which is a trait that is kind of rare in that community. Um, and he uh, very much a sort of cold-blooded Machiavellian uh, type thinker, um, system and, and much more systematic in his thinking than uh, most of the other folks that I have uh, I have mentioned. He wrote the book there, uh, and that's that's him and the, the, the red-headed fellow. He wrote the book there in the upper right, Dawat al-Muqawwam al-Islami al-Alamiya, uh, The Call for Global Islamic Resistance. He wrote that while he was, um, uh, probably most of which was uh, written when he was holed up in Pakistan um, in 2003-2004. He got arrested um, uh, in, I believe it was early 2005, and... Uh, rendered to the Americans, um, or given over by the Pakistanis to the Americans, and I don't know what happened to him after that. The, 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 there's lots of talk he was rendered back to Syria, because uh, that was a common thing the Bush administration did, uh, and if that happened, he's almost certainly dead uh, long ago. Um, so the individual jihad, it's incumbent upon, this is a survival strategy, right? This is not taking over the world or the Muslim world or anything like this. This is like, how do we live to fight another day? Uh, and we have these, these, um, this information technology that allows us to do that. And again, it's not just Saudi, I'm kind of throwing other stuff in there that um, similarly minded folks uh, also wrote about. Um, so how do we how do we take advantage of those new information technologies in order to continue these what are frankly mostly pinpricks right that kill a few people at a time or maybe ten or fifteen people at a time um, that don't you know they aren't really an existential threat uh, in any significant way but they you know they keep hope alive right keep the dream alive and through the use of media can be portrayed as part of a much larger narrative. Um, and uh, that's, let me just sort of continue on with this, with this fourth wave. The narrative that he's talking about, uh, Abu Musab al-Suri uses or talks about this concept of narrative uh, extensively uh, in a way that I have not found uh, other, at least earlier jihadi uh, ideologues to do. He actually just uses the word thakafa, which is just culture uh, in Arabic. But what he means by that is, is a narrative. It's a, it's a narrative that allows people to kind of hear your cause, associate specific acts of violence to this broader cause. And this broader cause is, is a network, right? It's not a hierarchical organization. Um, uh, Asuri actually details a history of jihadi groups, lo mostly local, but some global, uh, from the early 60s until that period that he's writing, so about 40 years. And he says, look, all these guys got rolled up by this local police and security forces. It's not difficult to do. You capture one or two guys, you torture them, they spill the beans, you go out and capture more of their colleagues, torture them, and pretty soon the whole group is rolled up or is, is insignificant. Uh, so it's just not powerful. So how do we create a system, not a hierarchical organization, but a system that allows us to continue to do acts of violence and again, live to fight another day. And I think the probably the most famous line out of this 
1600 page internet book um, uh, is when he uses this phrase, Nizam la Tanzim. And again, Arabic speakers know these have the same root. Uh, both these words have the same root, so it's kind of a play on words. But it means system, not organization. How to create a system that can't be rolled up very easily by security forces in this or that um, country. So again, this has some elements to it, but in the book, what I try and uh, spend some time looking at is what, what I call a wiki narrative. I coined this, this, this term wiki narrative. And that is, it's not a narrative that is linked to one or two or three uh, principal ideologues, but it is an always evolving uh, narrative uh, of, of thousands of people, thousands of, of minor ideologues, if you will, um, just every day, it's kind of every man's jihad, um, uh, that cons consistently morphs and evolves, incorporates the newest acts of violence into this broader narrative that makes it look, frankly, more powerful than it probably is from a straight you know, geostrategic uh, point of view. I don't have time now, but uh, if anybody wants to talk about, um, the, I think there's a direct uh, throughput from Franz Fanon and the Algerian uh, war against the French in the 50s and early 60s to Abu Masab Asuri and um, the kind of violence that we saw in ISIS. It's really over the top, grotesque kind of violence. I think there's a very straight kind of throughput uh, there, but I'll talk about that later. All right. Let's broaden the, the aperture a bit then. So here are these four waves, you know, current wave, three former, mostly former waves. Uh, how do we make sense of this community of, of, of groups that engage in this sort of violence? I refer to, the, the, to this wave four type violence, this call for individual or small cell violence that is not directly linked to an organization but it is kind of self-radicalized, self-motivated uh, through following an organization, again, given modern, given the internet, modern information uh, technologies. The term that is getting increasingly used is stochastic violence or stochastic uh, terror. And if it's focused on civilians, it'll be uh, almost always an act of, of terrorism, uh, not just violence. This is, uh, and the guy in the middle, you think, I don't recognize him as a famous jihadi. This is Tom Metzger, who was, uh, he just died a year and a half ago or so in, uh, in California. He resided in Fallbrook, uh, California, down by San Diego for many, many years. Uh, he was too radical for the KKK. He was uh, kicked out of the KKK, the uh, Ku Klux Klan, this uh, white supremacist uh, through the major white supremacist group in America. Uh, because he was, again, even too radical for them. But he and a colleague in the KKK in the 1990s first started thinking through how the internet can be used to advance their cause of white supremacy uh, in the United States. Uh, and then, and basically coming up with how, how is it that we can influence folks, can encourage them to think a certain way and to engage in violence when necessary, but do it in a way that doesn't come back to put us in jail, right? The plausible deniability. So stochastic, when you talk about stochastic, it's a probability term, right? The, the probability of something happening or not happening. This refers to inf uh, the, the uh, acts of violence that are influenced, but not logistically connected to some group. So they're influenced by ISIS or Al-Qaeda or somebody else, 
um, uh, but are not logistically connected. There's no flow of money or plans or training or anything like that. Uh, it is inspired violence, inspired violence. Um, when a group like ISIS puts out a call, a new call for violence, um, as they would do from time to time, if you're in law enforcement or security, you can predict there will be a rise in violent events. But you don't know who. Who is going to be radicalized that week or that month to get in his truck and run over a bunch of pedestrians or bicyclists or whatever? Uh, so you can predict an increase in the number of violent attacks, but you can't predict where they're going to happen. Uh, at least it's very difficult. Um, uh, in the US, over the last nearly decade, almost all um, uh, jihadi acts of violence, actually throughout North America, and I'll include Canada here, have been stochastic in nature. They were not undertaken. Now, in Europe, it's a mix, but in the United States, it's been all stochastic. And here I have some, starting in the upper left, the Boston Marathon bombings, upper right, um, uh, this is where this Uzbek uh, fellow got in, in this truck that you see here, ran over a bunch of bicyclists, killing uh, eight, I think it was, in New York City. Bottom right, this couple uh, in San Bernardino, California, that shot up their office workers. Uh, lower left, the Pulse nightclub bombing in Orlando, Florida, that killed, I believe it was 50 or 51 people. All of them were forms of stochastic terror. In other words, they were inspired by global jihad, essentially, but undertaken by specific individuals that we know of no connection that they had with any particular group uh, out there. So again, the broader question, does this, is this unique? Is this something that is um, that has only happened in these you know handful of cases in the uh, in the Muslim world? And here I make a, a broader comparative argument. It's a bit provocative um, about a subset of violent political movements. And I basically say, look at if you look at violent political uh, movements over the last century or so, almost all attach themselves to uh, some ideals of enlightenment, of the enlightenment. As the slide says, you know, science, liberty, justice, progress, material progress. And so that would apply to a number of Leninist groups, for example. There's Mr. Lenin in the upper left-hand corner. That would um, apply to uh, all the post-World War II national, or almost all, post-World War II national liberation movements. There's Habib Bourguiba of Tunisia in the lower right. Um, and their national liberation movement was reasonably, it wasn't particularly violent, not by comparison to next door Algeria, um, but it had some. And I make the argument that even fascist movements, um, usually fascism is presented as the antithesis to enlightenment ideals, right? The reaction against enlightenment ideals in 20th century Europe and beyond. Um, but I make the argument that in terms of material progress, um, fascism also attaches itself to at least elements of enlightenment ideals. Uh, Mussolini made the case very nicely for me when, when he basically defined fascism in, it, in Italy as making the trains run on time. Right? That would be material progress uh, in, um, in sort of the human evolution. There's Mussolini. I know if anybody had been to St. Peter's uh, Square in the Vatican, you have a straight shot view right down to the Tiber River with the Castel on the left, beautiful open big boulevard. 
that big boulevard was the Spina neighborhood um, in, in the earlier part, up until 1936. Here's a poster uh, from Italy in the lower left of Mussolini personally beginning the destruction of the Spina neighborhood to open up this broad boulevard uh, in front of St. Peter's Square uh, and to get the view that you have today. So again, it's sort of an element of modern progress, even though it's uh, under the, in the name of fascism. There's a small subset of violent political movements that make no claim to being part of the Enlightenment. This is not what they're about. And here again, drawing on, on um, uh, the work of Ken Jowett, who's a political scientist uh, at uh, Berkeley and Stanford uh, earlier, is retired now. Uh, I make the argument that this movement of rage phenomenon crosses geographies and crosses cultural boundaries and unites groups together analytically that you wouldn't on, on, on at first glance think uh, belong together. And there are three specific elements here that I, again, I go into in the book. One is the call for nihilistic violence, right? All these violent political movements, I mean, they're violent political movements, so they, they embrace violence, but it's typically, um, you know, strategic violence narrowly defined to advance the cause. Nihilistic violence, and here I'm using the term nihilism in its political, not its philosophical sense. Philosophers would look at nihilism meaning nothingness, meaningless. This is not meaningless violence. This is nihilistic violence in the political sense, the way the beginning with the Russian anarchist 60s used the term of nihilism, and that is root and branch violence, system destroying violence, just over the top violence. So I mentioned earlier Bin Laden's call for the, uh, the murder of 300 plus million Americans. There's an example of a call for nihilistic, uh, nihilistic uh, violence. So these groups that I'll mention in a moment, they all share calls for this really over-the-top kind of end times violence, if you will, which is linked to that second point, an apocalyptic uh, worldview. In other words, we're living in end times, even the secular sort of Maoist groups uh, have this same kind of notion of end times that we're going to go through a, just a hellacious, violent moment in time, and on the other side will be some version of nirvana, right? Some version of, of you know, the saved world, as it were. Um, here I, again, coin another word, gnosicide. Um, gnosis from the Greek meaning knowledge, the Latin suffix, side, the killing of. So the killing of knowledge, the killing of those with knowledge, and one of the things you see in movements of rage is the attack on the educated elite, primarily in the capital city, um, where most of the educated elites in many countries uh, reside. So they are not the only, but a focus of violence by these movements of rage. And then uh, the third is a, a self, both a sociology of marginality and a sort of a self-identification of being marginalized by the system, whatever that system is, and wanting to, um, um, again, rebel against the system in a, in a rage-based fashion. So other movements of rage that I talk about in, in the book, um, the, the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia in the 1970s is probably the sort of the exemplar, right? What was one of the first things the Khmer Rouge did when it came to power was to empty Phnom Penh, right, the capital city, um, it, it emptied it, right? It became a ghost town 
Why? Because that's where the, the cultural contamination by these educated elites, that's where it was most pronounced, was in the capital city. So we are going to either kill these people or we're going to send them off into the killing fields, right? The, into, into agricultural life uh, to die a little bit more slowly than uh, if we just execute them uh, outright. But it led to a genocide uh, in, uh, in Cambodia. A decade earlier, the Red Guards in China, uh, frankly, were a movement of rage. And I understand the argument, and I get into it about how Mao captured the Red Guards, but they autonomously developed. And again, who were their targets? School principals, the educated elite. Uh, the main policy that came out of the Red Guards phenomenon was the Cultural Revolution, 1966 to 1972. Um, which led to the shuttering of all universities uh, and many high schools throughout China. It led to the destruction of uh, lots of um, you know, old temples and uh, religious artifacts, et cetera. Uh, again, very much, I think, a movement of rage within the broader Chinese communist uh, movement uh, in the 1960s. Uh, Boko Haram in Nigeria, before it got on the sort of global jihad bandwagon, at least to a degree, uh, very much a localized movement of rage. Um, I talk about the brown shirts as being one of the four key elements in the coalition in Nazi Germany. Um, these were the semi-literate rural thugs in the 1920s and early 1930s in Nazi Germany uh, that were the protectors of Nazi leaders and rallies, right? They were the, they were the, the muscle uh, behind the Nazi movement. Uh, 1934, Hitler was in power at this point and gets rid of them. And the, it's called the Knife of the Long Knives. He didn't need them anymore. But up until that point, they were a key component of that Nazi coalition, uh, again, along with uh, several other actors. And I also, again, maybe provocatively compare it to uh, much of the white nationalist movement uh, today that I think uh, fits into this movement of rage. Not everyone across the board, but but many of uh, the elements of the white nationalist movement in the United States and elsewhere, um, uh, I think, fit into this same kind of movement of rage um, uh, categorization. So with that, that's what I have. And I thank you very much for your attention. And I look forward to the discussion. I'm sorry for going a little over. Thank you very much, uh, Glenn, for this uh... Uh, for this overview, or should I say, the trailer of, uh, of the book, and uh, I highly recommend uh, everyone to read it. Uh, and uh, uh, before uh, uh, getting to uh, our uh, colleagues for questions, and for those of you who are uh, on Zoom, if you'd like to ask a question, uh, please write it in the, the chat box to MEI Events, and we'll uh, uh, try as much as possible to um, uh, to ask the question right away here. We have about uh, uh, 20, 25 minutes uh, for the, the Q&A. Uh, I'll take the privilege of being the moderator to ask you the first question. And my question actually relates to um, the third wave, no, the, the second wave, which is Al-Qaeda. Uh, and, well, so should I turn off the microphone or, no, it's okay. Uh, because in the book, you, you explain it, you explain, and th this might sound like a paradox, you explain that this is the shortest uh, wave. And if I can quote from you, we found this, uh, this quite uh, fascinating. You, you say the terror attacks of 9-11 were an audacious, if 
evil sucker punch that found its target due to a wealth of dumb luck. And would you say that in retrospect, especially now that we're saying that the global war on terror is over, that uh, we turned the chapter of um, the war on terror, would you say that the, there has been too, uh, too much of an exager exaggeration on what Al-Qaeda represented, that uh, we spent two decades looking at Al-Qaeda as some kind of an existential threat, then it wasn't. Is it what you would like to say here? That that's in, in retrospect, if you, you look at this uh, phenomenon, the, the phenomenon of Al-Qaeda itself was much, uh, much less important than uh, we thought it was. Uh, it's a great question. And, and uh, I would say that of the four ways, uh, particularly the three sort of group-led ways, um, Al-Qaeda was the shortest and the weakest. Um, shortest in that it was really, you know, they had a, essentially a five-year run from 1998 with the East Embassy bombings um, to essentially by the end of 2003, they were what we came to know as Al-Qaeda Central had effectively been defeated. It didn't mean everybody was captured or killed, but it was a really hollow organization by comparison to what it once was. Um, and it, if you look at the number of recruits that Al-Qaeda had, it, it wasn't very many. I mean, ISIS had far, far more uh, recruits to the cause than Al-Qaeda did. And I think it's related to, um, I think it's related to the, the ideology itself is not particularly engrossing, right? If you're a, a, a young Muslim man, for example, or somebody else, um, attacking the Americans because you want to drive them out of the, the region, the Middle East, and the Muslim world more broadly, in order to then go after local regimes, you know, the near enemy regimes, that's, boy, that's not, that's not an ideology that really grabs you by the lapels and you know pulls you in. Um, so it 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 always had a problem um, recruiting members and um, uh, and basically being financially solvent. Again, by comparison to, to ISIS, uh, Al Qaeda was 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 much much smaller and weaker. Um, and again, its moment it had sort of five years in the sun, and that was about it. Um, in the, in the United States, it got most of the attention, I think, for obvious reasons, because of the 9-11 terror attack, right? This was mm. killing nearly 3,000 Americans on a single, not just Americans, or uh, internationals there, uh, on a single day uh, was the biggest such event in American history. But certainly the largest since Pearl Harbor in uh, 1941, and I believe the largest death count uh, of this kind of, you know, attack on civilians. Uh, in, in American history. So you can understand why it, it got a lot of attention. Um, the, the point that I was making even back at the, uh, at the time was don't make Al-Qaeda into this 10-foot tall, you know, uh, knowing everything, you know, the, uh, the uh, uh, omnipresent and um, know everything uh, group that is, you know, makes no mistakes and all. I mean, the, the way it was getting portrayed is this, I mean, it was in, it was incredibly evil, but it wasn't incredibly powerful, and it never was incredibly powerful. And its biggest event had a lot of dumb luck, frankly, that uh, that made it succeed. Um, so it's it's a threat. It's a threat you want to deal with, 
Um, but you don't want to exaggerate the threat uh, either. And so looking back in hindsight, I think that is, um, is still good wisdom that you know, this, is, this is a threat that needed to be dealt with. And I think at least in the early days of um, going after them in Afghanistan in 2001 was, was, the, was the proper decision. Um, but at the same time, you want to uh, understand, uh, even to this day, you want to understand that threat in comparison to other threats, other things out there in the world, whether it's you know, Russia or China or whatever. Um, you wanna be able to right size uh, the threat. And, and with Al Qaeda in particular, I think less so with ISIS, but with Al Qaeda in particular, um, the, the notion of right sizing the threat didn't take hold for, for a number of years. Thank you. Jeremy? Doctor, I'm very much impressed by your argument. It has an extremely deep running, even without knowing your book, which I definitely will read. And I'm particularly congratulating you for taking the pains of learning Arabic, because you're one of the very few who tackle this topic uh, in full command of the language, which I think is indispensable to, to understand it. But this carries me to a point, uh, and I follow up on what uh, Jean-Luc said. Um, there is a literature uh, I call jihadology, which has taken root in the past couple of years. Uh, much of what has been born under the aegis of this literature, literature we, I think we can uh, look at it discerningly and say some of it is good, some of it is bad. However, and this is my question, uh, don't we fear that just looking at the phenomenon, like looking at the symptoms of an illness, like looking at what are the symptoms of tuberculosis, okay, uh, and stopping short of going deeper and finding out the causes of the illness, the causes of the phenomenon, aren't we afraid that this approach will uh, essentially deprive us from uh, really finding out the root causes, the sociological, economic, and you name it, cultural root causes of terrorism as such. Because we cannot omit to see that jihadism, violent jihadism sprang up in those countries where all venues for a political solution, a political struggle were essentially closed. And I don't want to name these countries because the list would be too long. However, I am I, afraid that uh, looking at the phenomenon only will numb us and might uh, block us from looking, looking further afield. Thank you very much. If you could comment on this. Yeah, and again, a great question. Thank you for your, your kind words as well. And I, and I think this is, I mean, it's, it's, it's a right question. In other words, but we need, we need to get it right. We need to go down the right rabbit hole uh, on this. Um, I think there are some folks that want to explain the commonalities going too far, right? In physics, we have the grand unified theory, right? The gut. Uh, and the folks that, that want to do a grand unified theory of all Islamists and jihadi uh, folks around the world tend to want to find something in the canon of Islam itself that predicts this outcome, which I'm not convinced by those, uh, those kind of arguments. Um, and the, the, the differing 
um, root causes um, from each of these four waves. And the, the, what, what produces each of those waves is, um, is quite different uh, one from the other. And I think that I'm more impressed by that uh, than, the, than the commonalities, right? The commonalities revolve around, they make systemic global arguments and they, uh, and, and they call for the use of violence under the banner of Islam, right? So four iterations I'm talking about all share the, those two those two components. Um, of your, 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 your broader point, I absolutely agree with. And that is in countries where the political, um, uh, the, the political scene is closed, um, you're, you're going to have much more of this likelihood of violent, um, that doesn't have to be jihadi, it can be other kind of groups that, that are out there. If, if um, political redress is not available in normal institutional uh, processes, people will go outside those processes and they will resort to violence. Um, this is, and it still is my concern in the case of Egypt, for example, um, there's this, there's this long-standing debate about the Muslim Brotherhood in particular, uh, the Ikhwan al-Muslimi, uh, and sort of Islamist groups that are related to that. Are these groups um, stepping stones to radicalism, to further radicalism, or are they um, satisficers, right? Satisficing organizations. In other words, to the degree that people want some version of an Islamic state, they'll vote for the Muslim Brotherhood or its equivalent, and that's good enough, right? That, that kind of takes care of that impulse that they have. Um, for me, at least, the overwhelming evidence is that the Muslim Brotherhood, in most of its iterations at least, it is, a, is a satisficing organization. It's not a stepping stone for further radicalization. And I mean, the person that would agree with me, I think, right off the bat, uh, would be Ayman Zawahiri who wrote an entire book castigating the Muslim Brotherhood for playing in the system, right? That they need to reject the system, take up arms uh, and violence against the, uh, the Egyptian government. Going back to the present day, or since the, uh, the, the coup of 2013, uh, it's been impossible in Egypt and the regime in Cairo has really decimated the Muslim Brotherhood leadership, no question about it. Um, but doing that with, without without opening up the possibilities for just normal kind of redress that people have uh, over various issues, economic, social, et cetera, uh, is an invitation to radicalization. In my mind, it doesn't predict that there's gonna be a, a new global jihad group or argument, but it, but it, but it does open up um, the door much wider uh, to more radical and violent actions because the normal kind of institutional redress mechanisms are simply not available. And this worries me about the future of Egypt uh, and frankly, other countries that have done similar kinds of things. Thank you. Hi, uh, thank you so much for your presentation. I was largely uh, impressed and amazed by the breadth and depth of your research. So thank you again for your presentation. I study sectarianism in Egypt, and it was 2014 when I did uh, the major parts of my dissertation build work. And I could feel broadly, uh, I, I could feel like within the Egyptian society, the fear that Egyptians feel, like both Muslims and Christians. And I focused on Christian communities, and they were largely even more 
like fearful of the presence of the, the ISIS. And given that over 80% of Iraqi Christians, uh, the, the population of Iraqi Christians decreased uh, significantly during that time period uh, in 2014, it was also deeply concerning. Uh, but my, my comment is more about sociological, because I am a sociologist, and your discussion about the transition from wave three to four reminds me of the, the Zygmunt Bauman's uh, discussion on liquid modernity. So the, by liquid modernity, he talks about how society that we live in right now is largely fragmented. So in, it has been individualized, and people feel that uh, he doesn't even use the term people in his book. It's all about individuals and how people feel isolated and fragmented in the society. So it's really hard to create kind of a public interest among people. So they are they are isolated. They are all alone by themselves, of course, with the development of technology. So what is happening uh, with the wave four is really concerning to me because as you mentioned, the, those violent violent acts are inspired uh, by jihadists. So, and it's not necessarily religion-driven acts. That if if we see uh, the terrorist acts happen happening in different parts of the world, so I think in in that regard, I think it's more concerning to see how this uh, global jihadi uh, activism will spread across the world. So yes, this is more about the, the sociological comments that I wanted to make because that resonates a lot with the recent discussion on liquid modernity that sociologists have been talking a lot. And uh, I wonder if there are some online questions, but I would also love to hear more about why not Shia communities that we don't see global jihadism. Thank you very much. Thank you very much and, and, and great, uh, great questions. There have been... Um, a number of interviews with um, uh, captured ISIS folks, uh, both from the Middle East and from Europe uh, as well. And the thing that, that stands out for me is, well, a couple of things. One is how little they knew about Islam, right? Just, just kind of factual knowledge is very superficial and for many, many of these folks. Uh, so then, well, if, if they really didn't know very much about Islam and they went and joined ISIS, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty big commitment, right? Why? Why did they do it? And almost without fail, um, there are two answers. One is excitement and the other is meaning, right? Start with meaning. There's a great sense, again, this is overwhelmingly young, young men that get recruited to, to, to ISIS. The issue of meaning that... You're, you're part of something greater than yourself, that you are part of a cause that you don't know much about, but it sounds really cool. I mean, you, you want it to succeed uh, in, in, in some way, shape, or, or form. So this, this, this provision of meaning uh, and camaraderie, once, once you show up there, right, there's a, the, old, the old notion that, you know, when you're in a um, pitch battle, you're not fighting for a cause, you're fighting for the guy next to you, and he's fighting for you, right, and that sort of camaraderie. Um, uh, that, that helps give meaning um, to a lot of these young men. And people have pointed this out. I, I, I talk about this in the book as well. 
uh, and I just I sort of went over it very briefly or up on the screen earlier, is how storytelling trumps theology in ISIS, right? That ISIS didn't have much of a theological argument that was persuasive at least. Um, so when they would get these young men as recruits, uh, instead of indoctrinating them into sort of proper Islamic theology, um, they would tell stories um, from sort of the vast uh, Islamic canon um, uh, of, of victors shedding the blood of others and taking things totally out of context, perhaps, uh, in, in many cases. Um, but it was that storytelling that helped provide the kind of meaning to people that otherwise didn't know very much about the history of theology uh, uh, of Islam. And the other issue that comes up in these interviews again and again and again was a sense of excitement, right? You were doing something really cool um, that you couldn't get away with in Liverpool or Chechnya or Tunisia, um, but you can get away with uh, in Iraq and Syria under ISIS control. Um, so that sense of, of, of grand adventure uh, that again, young, young men uh, were looking for. So. Yeah, no, I think that's there. There's um, the, the, the issue of modernity. I sort of get into with this movement of rage, which is in in many ways a sort of an anti-modern, uh, certainly anti-enlightenment uh, kind of movement. But I, but I, but I think you're right. There's a sort of there's a there's a very interesting sociology um, that's going on. Um, we were talking about Jules uh, Capel and Oliver um, uh over lunch today, and you know this is part of their dispute with each other is the kind of the sociological argument of why why young men join right why do they join the cause do they join it because they as capel would have it you know they they seriously believe in this kind of ideological interpretation or are they basically young men who would join whatever group is out fighting for whatever cause you know when they're 19 and that's fine, right? And that's that's who they're going to join. It could have been communists yesterday and Maoists, you know, the day before, and jihadis today, you know, whatever. Uh, it's much more of a sociological uh, as opposed to ideological or uh, ideational. <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, uh, approach. Now, the the issue of Shiism, I think, is an interesting one. In the Shia world, you had the development of Islamism parallel to the Sunni world. Excuse me. In the Shia world, you had the development of jihadi uh, ideology parallel to the Sunni world at the same time, right? Saif Qutb is hanged in 1966 in Egypt. Uh, Khomeini gives his four lectures on Islamic uh, uh, government in 1970. Um, and at the same time, in the Shia world, not just Khomeini, but uh, Ayatollah Talakani, uh, Ali Shariati, probably the most famous of the Shia ideologues who was educated not as a theologian, but at the Sorbonne in France. You had a PhD in sociology, if I recall. Uh, so you had these parallels, Islamism, Sunni uh, Shia worlds, jihadism, Sunni Shia worlds. But global jihad has only been a Sunni phenomenon. It has not been a Shia phenomenon. The way I understand that is um, through the Islamic Republic of Iran, that the state uh, based in Tehran has, a, has, has essentially captured the market on radical interpretations of Shi'i Islam. So if you want to effectively kind of make that kind of an interpretation, sort of a global jihadi interpretation under the banner of Shi'a Islam, 
had to go through Tehran. And Tehran is, you know, it's a pretty powerful state. It will control those things as best it can. And it just, it's, you know, it's hard to be an independent global jihadi Shia group when Tehran is an opponent, right? So it's it's the state capture of the potential ideological. There's not, I don't think there's anything inherent in Shiism that prevents it from having these kinds of ideologies develop. Uh, I think that it's it's very much political and has to do with the capture uh, of uh, ideational power by Tehran in the sort of more radical venues of the Shia world. It's the way I interpret it, at least. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm afraid we have uh, uh, we have to uh, to to stop uh, here. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, let me uh, uh, again recommend uh, the reading of the book uh, "Global Jihad" that was published two years ago now uh, with Stanford University Press. As you can uh, uh, you can hear from the from the audience, and as we saw with your presentation, the book is quite impressive in terms of both the historical breadth and the um, let's say the theoretical ambition. So uh, it, it's really a, a great pleasure uh, to read it and also to hold you uh, for that opportunity. Uh, thank you to uh, our audience, both uh, here at the Institute and uh, on Zoom. And uh, again, uh, thank you for being with us uh, today, uh, Professor Robinson. Thank you, John. Thank you.